have your Bibles, you want to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, the words will be on the screen. Before we jump into the text, I, I want to do two things. I want to show you a picture of a small group here at Good News who last week really took it next level as far as like being the light uh, of the Advent season. And so they went to a restaurant and look, they wore their lights. How great is that? So good job, Footprints, small group. So let me just pray for us uh, before we jump in. God, thank you for today. Thank you for each person that you have drawn here today. God, I pray above anything that the words that we're about to read, that they would pierce hearts today, that, that something in this text uh, would reach each one of us, myself included. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. So 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowliness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So let's do a quick recap of, chapter of uh, Peter's three-chapter letter. As you may remember from last week, uh, chapter two is an absolute bomb that Peter drops on these people. So the first chapter is deeply encouraging, uh, but the tone quickly changes in the second chapter. And so Peter details uh, the sins of the ungodly who are living among them, and he gives a right but very harsh critique of the false prophets. And so in today's text, chapter 3, Peter returns to the theme of the first chapter, that God has given us these great and precious promises. And if we hold them out in front of us and trust in them, we will have the power to resist temptation and remain in the way of righteousness. And the beauty of Peter's letter is the simplicity behind it, as he presents deep theology through reminders. And he reminds his readers of two main things. One, to trust in the Lord's promises, and two, to trust in the Lord's patience. And in the midst of this brief letter, Peter also reminds his readers of the second coming of Christ. 
which is why this is a frequently used passage during the season of Advent. Because as Kim already reminded us, not only is the Christian meaning for Advent the coming of Jesus Christ and his birth at Christmas, it's also the anticipation of his eventual return. And so Advent is a season associated with hope, joy, peace, and preparation. And this lead up to Christmas, we are encouraged to both marvel at Jesus and look toward his return because it is imminent. So here's where we are going today. Just as Peter does in his letter, I want to point you towards God's promises and his patience by reminding you of the story of the entire Bible. Because that's what Peter does so masterfully in just 11 verses. But as you may well know, God's promises and his patience, they're a little different in the way that we perceive them. So I'm going to try to channel Leonardo DiCaprio today uh, from the movie uh, Inception, right? We had some Leo fans out there. Good job. And so if you, if you don't remember, Inception is about a protagonist attempting to plant an idea inside someone's head to change the outcome of an important decision, all while racing against time. And while this movie is obviously fiction, the concept of chasing promises is very real. And so, for example, even Christmas morning has promises tied to it. It has the expectation of a family and presents and holiday cheer, maybe cinnamon rolls and hot chocolate or whatever your tradition in your house is. And in a lot of cases, Christmas delivers, unless you're the mom who gets a robe, <laughs> right? But Christmas morning is just a shadow because no matter how great your Christmas morning is, it ends, right? And not so with Christ. No, Christ is eternal, the same today and every day, interceding on our behalf until his eventual return. And so with that, let's go back to verse 1, which begins, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. And so we probably have a lot of Gmail users in the room. Anyone use Gmail? Yeah? 9 a.m. was scared to admit it. I don't know why. But Gmail is doing some intuitive things in our inboxes, like sending us reminders if we haven't responded to an email. Some of you have probably experienced this. So if you've overlooked an email or just chosen not to email back, uh, a little reminder pops up. Do you want to respond? Right? And so it's not my point whether you think Gmail is being invasive or not. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, but this is what Peter is doing, essentially. So, so the beginning of Peter's letter is basically the modern-day marketplace email that says, Hey, good morning. I'm, I'm just checking in. Uh, I didn't hear from you with my last email because you completely ignored it. And because this is such a common occurrence, there are entire social media accounts dedicated to responding to unresponsive clients. And so in our world, distractions are abounding and reminders help bring us back to focus. I forgot to draw your attention to this, what I think is a cleverly design, de designed fake email uh, from Peter. I spent a lot of time on this, so if you can spend the 10 seconds it takes to read that, I would really appreciate that. I didn't give you the cue on that, Luke, I'm sorry. But Peter continues this idea in the second half 
of verse 1. He says, I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. And so this might resonate with parents of young children in here. If you've ever done the classic countdown when your kids are misbehaving, you go one, two, two and a half. Don't make me get to three, young man. Right? And as a parent, you're praying that you don't get to three because you haven't thought through what the consequences are going to be, right? And you're too sleep deprived to realize that this whole process never works, but you continue to do it. And so this is sort of what Peter is doing, right? Unfortunately, we never get to a third Peter in the Bible. And so what Peter is drilling into here is one of the most basic elements of community. And that's the way that friendships create accountability, Because beyond Peter's letters, so much of the Bible and so much of biblical community is just reminder. Because here's the thing about them. They actually work when they're done correctly. So if it's in friendship with someone and the person has the willingness to speak into someone's life, reminders are generally very good and effective. And so if we can't remember to email someone back, right, then I think it probably goes without saying that we need others to remind us of God's transcendent grace. And so Peter further encourages us to be wholesome in our thought life. Right? I'm going to hang on that one for a little bit, right? Wholesome in our thought life. So it's not just to remember the gospel, but it's to let the gospel transform your thinking. And so think of all the verses that remind us to be sober-minded, self-controlled, patient, loving, gentle. This is a fight for most of us in the room, and in particular, the men in this room. And all the ladies said, amen. So Peter continues in verse 2. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior, through your apostles. So Peter is reaching into his thesaurus bag here. So he's got remember, remind, and now recall. And so he continues to build on what we are to remember. And this verse essentially says that we have to remember the whole law, the words of the prophets and the words of the apostles, not just the parts that we like. And Peter's bigger point is that all of the Bible is one story. He says, tune your hearts to the reality that the word of God is one story of God's redemption. Don't miss the forest for the trees, he says. Verses verses 4 and 3 say this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And so Peter reminds us that there will always be plenty of scoffers and mockers. And they'll say, and they will continue to say every day and every year until Christ's return, it's been a while, where is Jesus? Because he has not come back yet. Right? And if we're honest, we feel that disbelief at times. And so we look at the clock, we look at the calendar, we go, it's been 2,000 years and then some, 
right? And that's really what I've been sitting in this week. So two big questions for me that I've been thinking about. Am I dialed in to Christ's return? And then I carry over from last week. Am I rehearsing the gospel and the story of the Bible to myself and to others? And those two questions bring us to the bulk of today's message, uh, which comes from verses 5 through 7. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So in these three verses, Peter succinctly tells the story of the Bible, which brings us to today's point, that the Bible is one story with four chapters. And that can be a little bit confusing for people, so I want to back up for just a second and lean on some visual aids. So if we look at sort of an aerial perspective of the Bible, it's one story with two parts made up of 66 books with four overarching chapters all centered around one person, Jesus Christ. And these four chapters, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, are sometimes referred to as the meta-narrative of the Bible, or the one big story that connects each of the individual books of the Bible, which all play an important role in the unity of the Bible. And so I've mentioned like a thousand times that I was an English teacher for much of my adult life, and so looking at today's text from a literary perspective is, is pretty fascinating. Uh, to do so, however, there has to be a baseline established, and that obvious starting point would be reading and understanding, right? So for example, if a student showed up for a test or you know, they're writing an essay of a book that they haven't read the last few chapters, it, it would be pretty obvious. I mean, those answers were entertaining, um, but it was like, come on, man. This isn't even close. And it's the same with the meta-narrative of the Bible. Smiley talked about this last week, that if all we preach about is God's love, and we never mention his justice, we're preaching a half gospel, which doesn't actually exist, right? So the story of the Bible begins in Genesis with creation, when God made the heavens and the earth, and then he made mankind in his beautiful image. And so if we were to just stop right there at creation, right, it would be tempting to think that we are the protagonists of the story, right? Because we're made perfectly in God's image. <clears throat> we're just hanging out in, in paradise. We're naming all the pets. We're sampling all the food. We're completely sinless. We might think that we're the point because without context, we might think we're both the protagonist and the narrator, of the story. But look at how God creates the world. It's with his voice. He reminds us that he is the narrator. Verse 5 reads, by God's word, the heavens came into being. And so the false teachers in this text, they're using the logic that because the world has been constant for so long that Christ's coming is nothing but a fairy tale. And what they forget or choose to ignore is as Pastor Rich Velotis reminds us, the creation story in Genesis was not intended to be a scientific treatise. Rather, 
It establishes a theological truth that when God speaks a word, nothing can stop it. In other words, the order of the world hangs on God's every word. So that means, yes, the Bible is one story, but it's his story and not ours. And as much as I want it to be, I am not the protagonist of the Bible. And we've got to be careful that we don't write ourselves into the Bible as we are reading it. And so, for example, stories like David and Goliath often give us inspiration about someone overcoming insurmountable odds in the face of adversity. But two things, right? David was not an underdog, right? He was trained, he was battle-tested, and more importantly, he was sent from God. And two, as a well-known pastor once said, we are not David, right? The point of David and Goliath is not that God equips all of us to be William Wallace, no, it's that God is the David who defends us, and we are much more like the scared soldiers than the hero. So can we take encouragement from David's story? Yes, absolutely. And do we have far more strength than our insecurities allow us to believe? Of course we do. But if we think we are the hero, then we are missing the point of the cross. Right? You and I, we cannot resurrect anything. Christ can. And in our second chapter, the fall, things don't look quite as good for mankind, right? As Adam and Eve fall from grace through their disobedience. As it says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so just as we did with creation, if, if all we read was the fall, when God seemingly banishes these innocent people for making just one mistake, we might be a little bit confused about who the antagonist is, right? And we might see God as unfairly cruel or even a bully. And that's why our redemption is so beautiful. Because like Adam and Eve, we question God's rule and his authority. And since God is not one to be mocked, he sent his son Christ in the flesh, and Christ willingly accepted the Father's wrath by taking our sins to the cross, paying the penalty for us. Look at Isaiah 43.1. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. And then after the death on his cross, Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in each, in each of us. And if we go back to 2 Peter 3, verse 7, it reads, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And this verse, of course, signals the last chapter, consummation, right? When all of the varied plot lines in the biblical narrative come together and are resolved through Christ's return, which includes his final judgment. And at that point, death and sin are forever done away with. It really is a beautiful story. And so for a lot of you in the room, you've heard that story. 
But if you're new and you've never put your faith in Christ, I want to give you some prompting from the book of John. After Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life, he asks a great question, which I would ask you, and it's, do you believe this? And if you've never answered yes to that question, I would encourage you to do so today. You can mark that on your Connect card or you can talk to anybody with a lanyard out in the lobby after service. And so keeping those four chapters in mind, I want to move to the final portion of 2 Peter. So I said earlier that some of the parts of our text would be a little bit uncomfortable and we're going to wade into some of those waters here in the next few minutes. Look at verses 8 through 10 again. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear like a, with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So going back to verse 8, uh, like it or not, we are dominated by time, right? So what time does church start? How many days until Christmas? When's the game? How long does it take to get there, Dad? Right? When does this sermon end, right? God, though, is outside of time. So past present and future, they do not relate to him, and he is not limited by them. And what's impossible for us to view is the entire history of the world the way only he can. And so naturally, that leads us to view the world through only our experiences. So if you're like me, suffering and sin and darkness, they can feel overwhelming at times. And that's just in my own circle. So every time I go one sphere out, so, you know, my little community to my city, to my state, to my nation, it can feel more and more overwhelming and it can feel like too much. But for God, he's seen all of that and he continues to see all of it. And so it's good for us to remember that his dramatic display of judgment comes only at the end of a long time of grace, patience, and mercy. He is certainly not rushing in to judgment. And so our reminder today is an obvious one, and it's one that I've mentioned several times already, and that's to remember God's promises and his patience. He is waiting for us to repent because he has a rescue plan for each one of us. And this is why viewing the Bible through this four-chapter perspective is so important because it reminds us that God is not cruel. He is patient and long-suffering. He's not spiteful. He is merciful. Jesus has amply displayed his nature of mercy, forgiveness, and grace to our fallen world. And his delay is meant to lead to repentance, not unbelief. And so we are all struggling in some way or another, and so we need reminders, right? You can never have enough reminders of God's forgiveness and his grace, so we take that and we look forward to the time where we won't need them anymore. 
And until then, we have to remember that one of God's promises is, in fact, his judgment. And so to get to verse 13 of 2 Peter 3, which reads, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. To get to that beautiful part, we have to go through verse 10, which says the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So in order for us to be remade, we must be refined. And if you're reading along in our study, which looks like this, we've got several out on the chairs. Please grab one. So this week we've been in Revelation, and we started the week at Revelation 6, which is a scene of utter fear. People are begging mountains to collapse on them in fear, and the mountains can't do it because they're scared themselves. Right? So when I think about God's creation and the mountains he designed, I do have to admit that I have some fear instilled in my heart. And so one of the things that comes to mind when I think of heights is the Skyway Bridge in Tampa, which probably a lot of you have seen. It's 430 feet tall. Right? And the first time I dro drove over this bridge, it was in 2001. It was my first year of teaching and coaching at a private school in St. Petersburg. And part of my job description as the girls' varsity basketball coach was to also be the bus driver, right? Because who wouldn't want a 22-year-old kid driving around a van full of teenage girls? Why not, right? And so, you know, I'm driving on the interstate, and I've got my printed-out MapQuest directions because phones didn't exist, right? And I'm thinking, like, what's our man-to-man -man defense going to look like? Are we going to stop at McDonald's or Subway on the way home? Like all these things are going through my mind. And then before I know it, man, the, the bridge is there. And like it doesn't tell you on MapQuest, you're going to go over a huge bridge. I just wasn't thinking about it. And, and so it's there. And I'm not crazy about heights. And I'm serious. I thought I was going to die. Right? And I'm thankful that these girls didn't have cell phones because it would have been embarrassing. And yet I can also remember visiting Grandfather Mountain in North Carolina, a place where a lot of you have probably been. And so if you look at the perspective, this is nearly 6,000 feet tall, right? And then there's Everest, which is 29,000 feet tall, or roughly 67 times higher than the bridge that I thought was going to you know, lead to my death. And yet these fear-inducing mountains stand no chance against the God of our universe. Their size and their power are nothing but a breath of air for God. And so we glimpse this power in Revelation at Christ's second coming. So if we look at Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, we witness this staggering scene. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. 
Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this, this name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. Mm. So if we hop back into the English classroom for just a second, this scene would be what we refer to as the climax of the story of the Bible. This sense that everything that has preceded this moment has been an introduction to this glorious unveiling of Jesus Christ as we have never seen him before, sword in his mouth and fire in his eyes. Atop a white horse and clothed in a robe dipped in blood, Jesus now wields the names Faithful and True, a glorious title showing Jesus as the keeper of promises, including the promise of judgment. And once again, God's word speaks power. For out of Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword, a dramatic way of referring to the power of his word. And so like a thief in the night, Jesus has returned. And the contrast of lightness and darkness, a recurring theme first introduced in Genesis, has now come full circle. So when he created the world, God brought light into the void. And at the fall, our hearts went dark, but the light was restored with his redemption. And now at consummation, his full glory is revealed, his white horse and the army's white linen clothes piercing a dark world one final time. It's an amazing scene. Now, we don't typically memorize or put, uh, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty in our prayer journals, or we don't send those along to school in our kids' backpacks. Right? But perhaps we would be well served if we did, because it's out of his love and out of his redeeming spirit that comes his wrath. And so to all the parents of, in the room, I want you to think of the wrath that would come out of your soul right, if someone tried to harm your children. Right? So in other words, Jesus' wrath, it doesn't negate his love for his people. It emboldens it. And it's that promise to which we need to hold fast. Because while we are rightfully encouraged to celebrate the joy of the Christmas season, the reality is that Christmas time is also notoriously difficult for families who have estranged relationships or if you've lost a loved one. And so each of us, no matter where we are in life, we have darkness in our lives. So last week in 2 Peter 2, we read of the blackest darkness or gloom, gloom of darkness, depending on your translation. And so like most of you, I've got memories of dark moments, but this week I was taken back to a childhood memory of my home in Orlando, uh, which, which has this really long driveway. I know it's a weird way of describing a home, but it relates to the story, I promise. So this long driveway, it made taking out the trash, super fun, right, for, this, for the angsty teenage version of me, right? 
And so trash days were on Monday. I remember this because I would always take out the trash at halftime of the Monday night football game that I'd be watching with my dad. And so it'd be late at night, and I'm dragging the cans down. This is before they had wheels on them, right? I'm dragging them down in the snow, uphill, both ways, right? It's probably about 50 feet, but it felt like a quarter of a mile. So I'd get down to the end of the street. I'd whip those cans around, and I'd probably, like, push them. What now, garbage can? I was very tough. And then I'd turn around to start to walk back to the house, and all the lights in the house would be out. I think a few more lights went out than intended, but that's okay. (laughs) And meanwhile, inside was my dad, right, who loved pranks, and specifically pranks involving scaring the life out of his kids. And so that, that moment at the bottom of the driveway for me, man, that was my moment of dread. It was my moment of darkness, the moment in which every scary movie I'd ever seen was all of a sudden my life. And as I walked back to the house, you know, tiptoeing, hands feeling the walls, because you can't remember where light switches are when you're going crazy, right? What I would have given for a cell phone so I could have some light. How nice it would have been to have some light shining in the darkness. This Christmas will be the... (laughs) Sorry. It'll be the fourth Christmas since we lost our nephew. And so four and a half years have passed since his death. And there are still times where that reality just chokes me out, right? And yet I know that in this room there are much fresher wounds than that. I know a lot of you in this room, you are going through it. You're caring for ailing parents. You're struggling in your marriage. You're trying to find out who you are at work or who you are at school. You're wrestling through doubts. You're grieving the loss of loved ones. And I don't want to nullify your pain with Scripture about the light and having joy in your hearts because Christianity is not an either-or faith. It is an and faith. So we can have joy and sorrow, praise and lament. There is both a time to mourn and a time to dance. And so instead, I want to point you to the beautiful reminder that in his time, Christ will return. And as it says in Revelation 7, he is going to wipe away all of our tears and they will never return. And so for those of you who need a reminder because you're in a dark place, I just want to read Psalm 18 over you. This is not on the screen, so I just want you to receive it in the way that you would a song. It says, In my distress I called to the Lord, I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. 
Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness, his presence advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High, Most High resounded. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, Lord, at the, at the, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. Sorry. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. How good is that? So our God moves mountains and aligns the stars. He hears our prayers and he races downward to pull us up out of our deep places. He is faithful and he's true and he can handle your broken relationship and your doubts and your failures. Darkness cannot overcome him. And so the next time you are, you're tempted to not believe that, light a candle or start a fire or plug in your Christmas lights and watch what happens to your brain. So I want you to think about how peaceful it is either early in the morning or late at night to have a Christmas tree with all of the lights on. How nice that is to look at. And it's beautiful, guys, because it's a picture of the gospel. It is the light piercing the darkness on a tree that is pointed toward heaven. And let that light remind you of what you are and what you know to be true, that you're hidden in Christ, raised from the dead, and made into someone new. Out of nowhere, Christ will return. One day soon, he's going to tear open the skies. He's going to lift the darkness, and all around us will be the faces of those sitting next to you right now, not to mention every nation and every tribe, all ready to praise his name. Oh, come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, master of both the light and the darkness, Lord, send your Holy Spirit upon us. Provide quiet spaces for us to hear your voice each and every day. Calm our anxious hearts as we look toward your coming. We who are blessed in so many ways, Lord, we long for the joy of your kingdom. We whose hearts are heavy, we seek the joy of your presence. We are your people, God, walking in darkness, yet seeking the light. So to you we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.